Isaiah 49, verses 1 to 13, page 736. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. The shadow of his hand, in the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing at all. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. He says, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer of the Holy and the Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers. Kings will see you and stand up. Princes will see and bow down. Because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. This is what the Lord says. In the time of my favor, I will answer you. And in the day of salvation, I will help you. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people, to restore the land and to reassign its desolate inheritances. To say to the captives, come out, and to those in darkness, be free. They will feed beside the roads and find pasture on every barren hill. They will neither hunger nor thirst, nor will the desert heat or the sun beat down on them. He who has compassion on them will guide them and lead them beside springs of water. I will turn all my mountains into roads and my highways will be raised up. See, they will come from afar, some from the north, some from the west, some from the region of Aswan. Shout for joy, you heavens. Rejoice, you earth. Burst into song, you mountains. For the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. This is the word of the Lord. We've all got things that we're dealing with, haven't we? We all encounter heartache and brokenness in our own lives, in the lives of our friends, in the world around us. 
we all find ourselves wrestling with things. And the things that Israel were wrestling with, as Isaiah wrote these passages, were some themes a little bit familiar to us at the moment. A homeland being held under siege, invaded. Families forced from their homes, trudging long roads to find a way to safety. Men and women taking up arms and fighting to preserve their freedom to live away from the tyranny of an invading force. Things that seem a little bit more familiar at the moment than maybe they did a few weeks ago. And as we see images of war on the TV, in our newspapers, we're compelled, aren't we, to ask some pretty basic questions. How long will this violence and misery continue? Who is going to save us, the people of Ukraine, perhaps save Russia from itself? Is this it? Is this the end? I'm not quite sure what it might be the end of, but it feels pretty heavy, doesn't it? And they are questions that have probably been asked by nations that have been invaded throughout history. And I realized just reading the Psalms over the last couple of weeks, a lot of those Psalms that have felt a little bit maybe violent or maybe a little bit desperate have seemed a lot closer to home over the last couple of weeks. These questions are asked by nations but they're also asked by us as we encounter that heartbreak in our own lives, when circumstances seem to overwhelm us and our hope starts to evaporate into despair. So often we just look for a way out. We cling to whatever scrap of hope that anyone is offering. We try to fix things for ourselves, and we get worn out. Maybe we look for other people who can come and fix things for us. Perhaps we're trusting in sanctions or foreign aid or the dedication of the Ukrainian people to lift them out of the circumstances they find themselves in. Perhaps we're looking for a hero. I've been really struck by the way that Vladimir Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, has suddenly been elevated to this symbol of Ukrainian resistance. There was actually a guy in America, I think, raising money by selling uh, special Lego, Lego figurines of Zelensky. <laughs> uh, and if I could have got hold of one, I would have held it up as a prop right now. Um, but it seems that he's a good man. It seems that maybe he's a wise leader. But no man can bear the weight of the hopes and expectations of a nation. Well, no man except one, but we'll come back to that. We might be waiting to win the lottery or for a medical intervention which will turn things around for us, 
for that apology which will end the heartbreak in our families. Or many other things that might just be the fix that we're hoping for. And none of those things in themselves are unhelpful. But there are limits to them all. There is a time when we, like Isaiah in this passage, say, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing at all. I am done and I have nothing to show for it. I have reached the end of myself. Maybe we feel like that as a church sometimes. But whether it's for ourselves, for our church, for the world, at some point we look beyond ourselves and we cry out for someone who can rescue us. And how does God respond? He says, it is too small a thing to restore the tribe's of Jacob. Now, has anyone got any friends, family who are Australian? Hands up. Just, just my wife. Oh, one over here. And a few others. Okay. So you might be familiar with this phrase, too easy. It's too easy, mate. Has anyone heard that? This is, this is what in Australia people say. If you say, oh, thank you for doing that thing for me, they say, too easy, mate. And it's like saying, no problem. Not at all. But I always slightly imagine it's like they're, they're challenging you to come up with something a little bit harder. Like, um, oh, you bought me a beer. Too easy, mate. Next time I'll buy you a meal. Or, uh, oh, you lent me your car. Too easy, mate. Next time uh, you can lend me your house as well. Anyway, um, and God here says, restore the tribes of Jacob. Too easy. Return the people of the land, repeat, return people to the land of Israel. Too easy. I will make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation will reach to all the earth. I am not content, says God, to just put things back to how they were. I am going to demonstrate my power in such a way that all people will be restored, and not simply from their physical circumstances, but from the spiritual struggle which is at the root of all of our circumstances. So in verse 8 and 9 we read, In the time of my favor I will answer you, and in the day of salvation I will help you. God commits to using his servants to restore the land and to set the captive free. God is making a promise to remain faithful to his people, to set them free just as before they were set free from Egypt, to be comforting and to be compassionate, to restore them to the role that they were always meant to have in the first place, which was to be a light to all the nations, to announce God's goodness to everyone, everywhere. For Israel, that must have seemed really absurd. Who is going to rise up and show the Babylonians what for? How can this weary and beleaguered and despairing people ever hope to be a light for the Gentiles? 
Who could possibly achieve all that? Well, the who of this question, of this passage, has been what scholars and teachers and preachers have fixated upon for many years. And it's very interesting. Christians obviously read this and go, oh, well, it's Jesus. But that's not always been the case, and it's not the case for everyone. And in fact, in some places, the servant in this passage seems to be Israel. It says, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. God's splendor isn't necessarily displayed just through one person, but through the whole nation of Israel. And yet, the servant also seems to be a person who was formed in the womb. What is this, a nation, some kind of community, an individual? Well, I think that that kind of discussion can easily lead to us missing the point. If I say, I wandered lonely as a cloud that floats on high o'er vales and hills, or shall I compare thee to a summer's day, thou art more lovely and more temperate, or even I'll be loving you till we're 70. We don't spend all of our time fixating upon exactly who it is who's addressing us. We understand that buried in that poetry is an expression of an experience we all should relate to. The point of the servant's song here is not guess the identity of the servant, but it's a reminder of the faithfulness of the God who rescues and a call to the very principles that Israel was founded on. This was who they believed their God, the only God, was at the deepest part. God is faithful. God is committed to people. God is committed to creation. God will not abandon or forsake us even in the midst of our deepest despair. Now, having said all of that, when the early Christians opened their Bibles, they didn't have Bibles to open, they had scrolls. I don't know. They, had, they, had, they went to the temple and someone opened a scroll and read it. Um, when they came back to these passages, they saw in them something very familiar that they weren't just expressing an ideal or an abstract notion of God's faithfulness. But somehow these promises were embedded in the person of Jesus that they knew and that they loved and that in him all of their hopes were fulfilled. When Simeon, you might remember, receives Jesus into the temple, he declares him to be a light to all the nations. And Jesus himself says, I am the light of the world. So Jesus is the light. But then Jesus also says, you are the light of the world. And in Acts 13, Paul suggests that we as Christians are called to be a light to all the nations. Because like Israel, we are called to be the light because we follow the light. We have encountered the great hope of a God who is faithful. And now we are called to live in light of that hope. 
And that doesn't mean just sitting back in our armchairs and going, oh, great, I've got hope. Thank goodness for that. I can ignore all of these things that are going on around me. No, this is, our, this is not passive hope. This is, a pa- this is a hope which compels us to put boots on the ground, to roll up our sleeves, to get involved, and to live out that hope of God in a hopeless world. I've been really struck in the last couple of weeks, so you've probably seen some of the images of Christians worshipping in Ukraine. Men, women, children in basements, in makeshift uh, bomb shelters, saying the Lord's Prayer together, receiving communion together. Um, There's one pastor of a church in, in Ukraine called Benjamin Morrison, and he said, worshipping in the middle of a war, that just doesn't make sense. And I can relate, because my prayers have never felt more feeble than when I'm praying for something to change in this vast situation that feels so hopeless. And yet, and yet, Morrison goes on to say that during war is when it makes most sense. What better reminder is there that even war cannot stamp out love? What better way is there to say that we serve a higher king than to rejoice in the midst of chaos? And at the same time, I've been inspired by the response of Christians around the world. Communities flinging open their doors to welcome refugees, to raise money, to give, roads blocked with lorries delivering aid, priests in Russia who are being fined for speaking out against the Russian army. And I even read somewhere about Russian Christians who are sending medical aid across the border for their brothers and sisters in Ukraine. Because like Isaiah, they know that their hope doesn't lie in their military might or even in the leadership of Zelensky or in interventions or sanctions from the West. And our hope doesn't lie in that magical apology from a member of our family or that medical intervention. We, too, have a greater hope, a hope which lasts, which shapes us evermore into the image of a faithful God so that no matter how hopeless things might be, in the midst of our despair, we share in that same Jesus Christ who is our ultimate and greatest hope. So let's be people of hope in a hopeless world. And I know Uh, that a lot of people have been wanting to know what they can do. We want to pray desperate prayers, but we also want to do something. Uh, How can we help victims of this war in Ukraine and in other wars? We might have given some money. We might have pledged to support refugees. Can we have the slides up, please? There's a lovely picture that you might be a bit familiar now. And you can see... Uh, We've suggested that you can donate to Tear Fund. If you've seen an email from us, there's a link there, um, but we can probably send some of these around again, if that's possible. Um, 
European Mission Fellowship. Uh, there's also a really brilliant document that the Church of England have produced, which has got a lot of detail, and they suggest the Disasters Emergency Committee um, and also USPG Diocese in Europe Emergency Appeal, which is a mouthful. Uh, so you can scribble those down, or like I say, we can email these around. And then, of course, if we want to try and sponsor refugees, the government seems to be moving towards a scheme where people are named and that we can offer sanctuary for people. So there is Leicester itself is a city of sanctuary, uh, and there is an organization called the Sanctuary Foundation that's being led by Krish Kandaya, um, and they are asking individuals and churches and pubs and communities to express and pledge their support for refugees. Um, so some of the details are still being worked out, but I would really recommend that you, you look at some of those. Um, and then there's this government scheme, and Reset UK are the charity um, who can help us link up with some of the people. So that's just a few practical things. But I think, I, and I hope, that we're asking, as a country and as individuals, how we can be more hospitable. Because the Bible calls people the aliens within our gates, which I think just means people who have found themselves away from their homes and living with us, and we have a responsibility to take care of them. And Hebrews, says, Hebrews 13 says, Don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers because you might have entertained angels without knowing it. Um, there's some more passages there. We won't go through them all. Um, can we have the next slide? And our own bishop has, supported, has, um, has challenged a bill which is currently going through Parliament, uh, and a number of Christian leaders have, actually. This is the Nationality and Borders Bill. I don't know if you've heard about it, um, but it basically means that people who are arriving in our country through irregular routes, and that's people coming on boats or uh, on uncharted boats, or people coming in lorries, rather than being assessed based on their need, would be put into another tier because of the way that they arrived in the country. And it will essentially criminalize lots of people who come looking for asylum. Uh, and I think as Christians, we should be advocating for a more humane approach. We should be advocating for a, for a nation which is kinder and looks for how we can share the goodness of what we've got with others, um, rather than denying them the basic rights and freedoms uh, while they await the outcome of their request for asylum. So, um, as I've said many times, the gospel is political and we have a responsibility to speak out for those who have no voices. Uh, so one simple thing that we're going to do today uh, is to join with some churches around our diocese and alongside other communities, next slide please, around the country, and we are going to express our desire for a more humane environment by going outside and taking a photo with some orange hearts outside a local landmark. We have a local landmark, so we're going to go and stand outside the church. I've got my, um, my giant heart here, and I've got a nice string of hearts here as well that we can take with us. Hopefully, some of you have got hearts in your pews. Do you want to wave them if you've got one? Lovely. We've got some crochet hearts. I'm glad to see that. Great. Fantastic. So if you want to join me after the service, we will take a photo outside. Um, 
obviously, they're going to go up on social media. So if you don't want your image or your children's image appearing on social media, you're going to have to keep out of the picture, I'm afraid. Um, and if you would like to know more, or what more you can do other than taking a photo of an orange heart, uh, please come and speak to me, and we'll point you in the right direction. But I'd just like, uh, before we move into our next hymn, uh, just to say this prayer, which is for refugees, which is from that um, resource from the Church of England. Let's pray. Almighty and merciful God, whose son became a refugee and had no place to call his own, look with mercy on those who today are fleeing from danger, homeless and hungry. Bless those who work to bring them relief. Inspire generosity and compassion in our hearts and guide the nations of the world towards that day when all will rejoice in your kingdom of justice and of peace. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.